And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. The year is 2021. The place? Bend, Oregon. Number of blockbusters on the planet? One. All of those statements are relevant to today's conversation because I have the pleasure of speaking with Sandy Harding, who is the current manager of the last blockbuster on the planet. And I gotta tell you, despite my feelings for Blockbuster, I am really rooting for this little engine that could right there in Oregon, right here on U.S. soil. And, you know, that's important because the second to last Blockbuster was in Australia. And despite my love for the Australian people, the for the, the continent of Australia, well, except the Huntsman Spider, but, you know, we've discussed that on many, many episodes. But I really think that it's important that the last blockbuster in existence should be on U.S. soil. That's exactly where it is. And we're going to talk about this particular, this timepiece, this, this, I, I'm surprised that this isn't a national monument by now. So maybe if the president is listening to this episode, I think we should really consider it's already a national treasure, this blockbuster. We should maybe consider making this an, a national historic landmark. I'm going to see what I can do. But in the meantime, let's get right into this because I'm very excited to find out what it is that makes both Sandy and this blockbuster tick, how they've been able to not only survive, but to thrive in this particular climate, in this digital age that we are in right now. So let's get right into this. Sandy, thank you so much for being on the show today. You are the woman, the myth, and the legend. And in some ways, you've be- you've had this kind of legendary status, which I think is really interesting. And I do, you know, I know that a Netflix documentary just came out. I'm sure you're aware of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Since that came out, you guys have, you know, the popularity has obviously soared. I want to go on record right at the front of the show and say that I've been trying to get you on the show for a couple of years. So way before <laughs> I was ahead of the curve here, people. She's just really busy. And it's, uh, you know, tough to get her on the phone when Good Morning America is calling. And I understand that. This So here's, I want to give just people who have have not understood. I'm just going to go with just a quick little intro about what's happening here, why this this store is so special. So I want to say that I saw the last blockbuster on Netflix, and I'm going to give the audience a moment to let the irony of that sink in. Now, the blockbuster filed for bankruptcy in 2010. Dish bought it, Dish Network bought it in April of 2011, and they thought it would give Netflix a run for its money. I want to tell you about a story right around that time. Everyone remember 2011, people, because I got a funny story for that. That is exactly 10 years ago this week. So 10 years ago, a decade ago, Dish Network bought a already bankrupt Blockbuster. And then in November of 2013, two years later, they disclosed uh, all of their Blockbuster stores. But many were still open to business because they were, they were franchisees instead of corporate stores. We're going to talk about that in a second. And here you are. Eight years later, still around. In 2018, all the Alaskan stores shut down. So that you were the only U.S. store in 2018. And then as of March of 2019, two years ago, again, just a couple weeks ago, you're the last blockbuster on the planet, possibly the galaxy. And this is the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Did that make you excited? Did you were you scared? Did you not care at all? Did this not affect your life? I'm curious what all the, the gravity, the history of that of that moment did to you. Well, I can tell you, and I, and I know that this has been reported on before, but it was a pretty exciting moment when I found out the Australia stores were closing. It was a winter snowstorm. I was driving in my truck, and a radio station in Australia called to tell me that the store was closing, and it was uh, it was a pretty crazy. Pretty crazy um, couple of hours when I found out, um, you know, calling everybody and going, oh, my gosh, we won. And it's kind of funny because our <laughs> You're excited. It, it, <laughs> you it, jerk. Kind of, it, it, I know. It was a double-edged sword because it really was exciting knowing that we had, you know, we had persevered over everybody else. But it was also sad because 
you know, we realize people lose their jobs and other mm-hmm. stores closing. Right. We're right. one step closer to not having any more blockbusters. And then the overwhelming of, oh my gosh, you know, and, and, and then I, I started thinking of, oh, what if we have to close? I do not want to do that media coverage. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't right, want yeah. to be a part of that. And, and I was like, you know, and then I kind of got teary eyed because I'm like, I don't even know what that would mean to have the store closed, to be the end of all of it. And, and now it even feels more, more weight on our shoulders. And, you know, we're very excited. And I, I love when people come and I, I mean, I have hundreds of emails I haven't even gotten to simply because we have so many well-wishers sending us messages and it, it makes me so sad because I like to be able to answer my email, but I, it's just overwhelming. Um, but I, I'm thinking what it means to everybody else if something were to change and we weren't able to last out. And so then it just really like tugs at my heart going, oh my gosh, I'd be so I'm like, I'm letting everybody down. So yes, wow. there's a lot of weight on our shoulders at the same time too. So um I don't know. It's just a wave of emotion. You just don't really know. Some days I'm like super excited. Some days I'm like, holy cow. Some days I'm like, want to curl up in a ball and go, I don't know if I can do this. So anyway, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of crazy. So. Well, I got good news for you. Okay. So they call me the analytical mastermind. Uh, I'm the greatest ponderer of this generation. <laughs> and I will tell you something that's going to make you really happy and put your mind at ease. Right. So while okay. these blockbusters are individually going out of business, I think there were nine like in 2018 or whatever. And then the, the Alaskan ones closed. Right. And so at that moment, when there's only two on the planet, I can understand where your fear would come in because one of you is going to go. One of you yeah. has to go. But once you become the only one, it's just like the Hunger Games. It's just like the Highlander. It's just like Battle Royale. You, winning that lottery, right? All those other people going out of business make sure that that almost ensures your success for future generations because I don't know what it would take for you to go out of business now. I, I really don't because, I, I mean, th- there's everything's working against you as it is and – do you then let's let let me pull on that thread for a second what do you think it would take to really put you guys out or do you think you are really what the the industry's version of the cockroach (laughs) well i i really don't know i I mean obviously people not coming to the store people not renting movies you know people not buying t-shirts online you know those are the things that are going to make us no longer be able to sustain the business Um, because no matter no amount of hard work or beanies that I make or any of that matters if we don't have customers coming in the doors. So, um, you know, that, that would be the the breaking point for us, I think would be when that happens or if something happened and the building wasn't there or, you know, something happened to it um, outside of our control. But as far as what we can do, I mean, you're right. We've been faced with all kinds of obstacles over the years and all kinds of people saying, you know, that we're not going to be able to make it. And, and I was actually talking to an ex-Blockbuster uh, employee who had come to visit the store the other day. And I was like, do you remember back in the day when you would be out in public and people would ask where you worked and you wouldn't want to tell them you worked at Blockbuster because you didn't want to hear about how, oh, my gosh, you're going to not have a job here pretty soon. They're all going bankrupt. They're all closing. You know, why would you want to work there? And now it's like now on the other hand, it's the flip of that. Now I'm like kind of smile when people ask me where I work because I know if I if I answer and tell them, then it's going to be this overwhelming excitement. And I'm not ever going to get to finish buying my groceries because I'm going to be taking selfies and, <laughs> and doing that. And, and it's exciting and it's happy. And I, I, I thoroughly enjoy all of the conversations and what Blockbuster meant to people. I mean, it, it I mean, I truly mean it. I, I enjoy having those conversations with people. Um, but I still have to buy groceries. I still have to do my job. So, so you don't have people buying groceries for you now? Like that's not, you haven't reached that quite that level of celebrity. No, I haven't quite convinced my husband, although he left to go to the gym a little bit ago and I told him to stop at the store and pick up butter and paper towels. And he kind of like gave me this frowny look like, why do I have to go to the grocery store? So I'm still working on him to try to get him to do it for me. You look him dead in the eye and you say, I'm the, I'm the manager of the last blockbuster (laughs) on the planet, pal. And if you don't get in the shape, you're going to be out the door like the rest of the blockbuster (laughs) stores. Cause I survived those closing. I can survive. You're not going to the grocery store. That's what I would have said. Right. Looked him right in the eye. Oh. You know, it's funny. I do throw that up every once in a while. Going, I can't do the dishes. I'm a celebrity now. You've got to do the dishes. Um, but that doesn't work very well. I love so. it. That's great. Well, so I, I'm going to play the bad guy here for a moment. And I feel like it's going to be my role in this podcast to be the bad guy. But that's all Uh-oh. right. I'm all right. So I got to be honest. I, I listened to a lot of interviews that you did. And everyone seems to just love Blockbuster, have great feelings about it. You know, I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't have the nostalgia for Blockbuster. 
Um, you know, uh, it just wasn't wasn't for me. As a matter of fact, I was actively against Blockbuster and Hollywood Video. I mean, I, you the, the excitement you felt when the Australian store went out of business is the excitement I felt when they declared bankruptcy in 2011. Um, and, and so so all this nostalgia that's going on, it's it's just interesting for me to watch it from you know from a totally different perspective because i understand that nostalgia is in fact a powerful tool and sometimes it helps you make you forget the bad and in truth blockbuster the corporation was a very bad company um how do does any of that ever fall into do you ever think about any of that that this is nostalgia and this is kind of rose-colored glasses or was your store a little different where are you on the spectrum with that so first of all i have to ask if you're related to red hastings because you know, Reed, the whole you thing mean? <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, I'm not, I wish. Um, <laughs> I do own a lot of Blockbuster stock. I'm, I mean, I do own a lot of Netflix stock. I'm not going to lie to you, but uh, but no, I'm not related uh, to it. And I apologize for messing up the name. Um, no, you know. He's not listening, I hope. <laughs> and, the, and the thing with all of that is that, you know, we were different from the get-go because we here in Bend, we started out. And I know you know this from listening to podcasts, but we started out as mom and pop. We started out with one store, grew to two stores, grew to three stores here in Central Oregon. And we were well known as Pacific Video. So we were that mom and pop small business from the get-go. And the whole reasoning behind becoming Blockbuster was simply because Blockbuster had that, you know, that negative, oh, I'm going to move into the community. I'm going to put up a Blockbuster store and I'm going to run mom and pop out of, the, out of town. And so a lot of people I know when when we became Blockbuster, um, really thought we were kind of sellouts and, you know, we, we franchised. But the whole purpose of that was because if we didn't franchise, Blockbuster was going to come in and with RevShare and all of those things that they had the ability to do, we weren't going to be there anymore. So, you know, you kind of have to go with the flow kind of a thing. And that's kind of how we've done things this whole time. We still operated as a mom and pop. So, you know, when Blockbuster went away with late fees, we did the same thing. We realized that was not sustainable. So about a year later, we introduced late fees, but we didn't go back to that old model that Blockbuster had that was so negative that everybody hated, including us, because trust me, customers didn't like having late fees. Employees did not like having to explain to customers that they had late fees. I mean, it was not a happy situation for anybody. None of us liked it. Um, so we went back to a per diem thing so that we could make things, you know, still encourage people to move, bring their movies back, but not break the bank at the same time. I mean, we wanted people to return. So mm-hmm, I think that mm-hmm. uh, from the get-go, our model was different than Blockbuster's. We were all about, you know, making the customer happy and customer service, whereas Blockbuster, I mean, they were, but they were still looking at the, you know, the bottom line. They were, you know, what can we do to make money? And to, I shouldn't really say to hell with everybody else, but that's kind of the way that they acted, um, which was... They're not around anymore. Just You can just cut loose, Sandy. They're not around anymore. They're not going to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and I don't like being the armchair quarterback and sit here and say all things. I wasn't in those conference rooms. I don't know that people's hearts and souls weren't in it as much as mine is into our store. I mean, who knows what people were. I mean, I'm sure there were good people in those meetings who saw that this wasn't the right way to go and really wanted to make a difference. And I know for a fact when I talk to a lot of ex-Blockbuster employees that they tell me about how they would do unique things in their stores and how they love their communities. And so I know on the surface, the people that were actually doing the work were all about their communities and all about their customers. But the corporate part of it was where the negative part of it was coming from. And so I think right from the start, we were we were unique and different and people still knew in Bend that we were Pacific Video. Even though we operated under Blockbuster name, we still were Pacific Video and we still treated our customers the same. I mean, we would do something, we called it the movie run, which every day, the, th- the four stores we actually had at the time in Bend would take turns and customers could drop off their movies at any location. And that was something that Blockbuster didn't do, where if you dropped off your movie, you know, at the wrong store, then you're going to have late fees because you dropped it off at the wrong store. You could drop your, your movie off at any location, even in Redmond, which is about 15 minutes north of us where we had a store. You could drop your movie off. We would check it in. And then one of my employees would drive around and pick up all those movies every day. And it would take about an hour. And we would drive around and we would drop off each store's movies uniquely and make a big circle every day. And that was wow. something that we did and went out of our way to make sure our customers had their movies returned to the right store. And it was just a convenience thing. And I think that, that the customer service aspect is where – we always had that. We always had that uniqueness away from the corporate blockbuster. And being a franchise, we had the freedom to make choices and to do things. You know, we had to stay within 
the parameters, obviously, of the, the franchise agreement. But we were able to to do the things that we need to do to keep ourselves um, part of the community. And I think that Ken and Debbie, and, and I came four years after they became Blockbuster. So, you know, I've been here 17 years this year. So um, I feel like Ken and Debbie have always had that, you know, we need to be a part of the community. We need to do things to support local and that's what we do. I mean, all of our merchandise now is all made and acquired through other small businesses in Bend. Hmm. I mean, I have a, a father and son who screen print our T-shirts. I have a father and two sons who do all of our magnets and keychains and all that other stuff. So, I mean, we, we it's a family affair all the way around. Um, and I think that's what made us unique. So, wow. yes, I get the negativity of the corporate blockbuster, but we, right from the get-go, wanted to be us and never – Never being that corporate thing. No, that that makes sense. I mean, it's you know these are kind of like the, the the tough issues that I like to look at. So you know, it, it, because it's funny to me, right? Like it's strange that right now, you know, as a group, as a store, you guys are in some ways benefiting from being the last blockbuster, right? And every yeah. you know, and all you guys are owning. You guys are in one hundred percent. Like you're you know you you are you are all in on blockbuster. But you know, you tell this story, which is which is a story that is so familiar. In, in the 90s and then, in, you know, in the 2000s where a blockbuster would come into town and they would see these mom and pop stores and they would threaten to open up a blockbuster unless you assimilated. I mean, they're like the Borgs, right? I mean, like you th- – th- I mean, it is predatory tactics. <laughs> I mean, it, they bullied you guys into changing it. And in some ways you did sell out, but you had to. I mean, you it was either yeah. – it was either do that or you would be destroyed. And, you know, that was, that was how you became a blockbuster. You know, here you are 17 years later is the last one reveling and becoming, you know, you guys, it's almost like you were brainwashed, right? Like you were taken in by the enemy. You were put in the gulag. And then 17 years later, you're like, well, you know, I'm no longer an American. I am now a Russian, you know, I'm an expat, you know, I mean, does that thought ever pop into your head? You know, that, that, you know, so actually it's, it's actually the opposite. I feel like we pulled one over on them. Okay. Because all right. All right. They thought that they were, you know, doing that with us and, you know, brainwashing us when we really were like, you know, it's the irony is not lost on us that we were a mom and pop. We operated as a mom and pop the entire time, right. even though we were under the blockbuster name. And who's the one that lasted out, lasted all of them? Right, the one right, that yeah. was the mom and pop. So, I mean, Blockbuster, the big bad blockbuster came in and tried to, you know, make us into them and it didn't work. I mean, mm, yes, we still mm. operate under the name, but we're still here. In part because we were that franchise. And, and I mean, honestly, you know, Dish came in and closed all the corporate stores. Dish took on um, a business model, or I shouldn't say business model, but they took on a business that was already, like you said at the beginning, very strained, very much, you know, about to go out. I mean, they, the fact that Dish bought them, I don't, I'm not even sure why. Um, but, you know, it wasn't really super successful and and the chances were they were going to have to close the store so so those a lot of stores even if they were profitable had to close because corporate stores all closed mm-hmm. um and i'm sure that there are some places out there that the stores could have could have lasted if they'd left them open um and we've we've just been able to change things cut things do things that um you know the other people weren't able to do it and it it's kind of strange because People talk to me now about it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we make our own reader board signs, which right now I, it's blank because I've been so busy I haven't been able to do it. Yeah. But we do that. and You, you know, do that, 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 right? Like you personally we, do that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's crazy. And so it's like every time something would, would close or something would change, we're like, okay, well, there's nothing we can do about it. You know, People would ask me, how are you going to compete with Netflix and Redbox? I'm not. I, I, I can't offer anything that they're offering. The only thing I can do is give excellent customer service you know, and do things differently here that will make people want to come back. I mean, an algorithm isn't that personal touch. Mm-hmm. You can't right. go on and talk to somebody on that, on your computer or on your, your Xbox or whatever you're watching, you know, Netflix on, you can't talk to somebody on that. You just have to go with whatever they are. The algorithm is kicking out for you where you can come into our store and you can talk about movies. And I mean, let's face it, even though you didn't like blockbuster, I'm assuming that you like movies. I'm assuming you like entertainment and whether you're listening to a podcast or you're, you're watching a DVD or you're watching something, you know, a reality show and whatever you like, people like to be entertained. People like to be to escape the the craziness of the world and be able to be entertained for a little while and relax and calm down. And and movies are something that everybody loves. And I'm, I'm sure there's a few out there that don't. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. People, but what's great about coming into Blockbuster or coming into your local mom and pop that I know there's lots of local mom and pop still out there operating 
But the the great thing about that is you go in and you get to talk to a real person and you get to talk about movies and talk about things that you love and and regards. I mean, it could be dramas, it could be horror movies, it could be whatever you like, but it's it puts a smile on your face for a little while. And it doesn't matter where you go. Like I said, I know there's a lot of people that didn't like Blockbuster. I was never a fan of Hollywood video. I always thought they had um, you know, crazy, crazy tactics over there too. But you know, and that was before I came to work for for the video store, but if you're going to survive, you need to have a niche audience, right? So in, I live in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and I do work in entertainment. That tells you how much I love television and movies. So, mm-hmm. so, um, when, when you have those types of audiences, like in Los Angeles, there, there's actually a video store. I was doing some research and there is one here and it's specifically for cinephiles, right? Like it's hard to find movies, hard, stuff you can't find mainstream on Netflix oh. and, you know, Amazon Prime and everything. And I think there is a niche for, for that because with streaming, a lot of the stuff's available, but you've got every movie studio that's now coming out with their own streaming service and wanting to charge 15 to 20 dollars for it and no one can afford it because everyone was cutting their cable to, to save money and now you're going to spend more money on less channels so there's going to be a whole nother revolution there when it comes to on-demand entertainment but i think that th- oh, yeah. that that has opened up a place because before when you had netflix they were licensing all the movies from the other studios so you could buy one netflix subscription and get 80 percent of your movies that's what i did and i'd get hulu and get you know 90 percent of my television and i had two services now everyone wants to keep their own ip no one wants to license it so you have to buy everyone with you guys you have all the movies so in fact this is actually them fighting over the streaming rights is actually carving out a niche for video stores to remain in business because you guys will have everything in one location that's cheaper or, you know, uh, than, or, or at least the same price plus that personal touch. That is actually a very interesting revolution, I think, and I think you guys will benefit from that. Do you agree with that? Oh, no, absolutely. And, that's, and I think that you're right. That's exactly how Netflix became so powerful right from the beginning was because they did something that, you know, that, we, that Blockbuster couldn't do at the time or other video stores when they started doing the streaming services. And they did have everything available. So, And it was like the new shiny toy that everybody had. You can stay at home. You don't have to go anywhere. And it's right there already. You don't have to drive down to the video store. You don't have to worry about having late fees or any of that kind of stuff. So, so I mean, they were brilliant doing that. I mean, let's face it. And then they started coming out with their own content, which was also brilliant. I mean, they just took it to that whole nother level. And so their business model was great. But you're right. I know personally at home, I have Netflix. I have Amazon Prime, I have HBO Max, I have Discovery Plus, I have Paramount. I mean, in order and every day when we're going through that, and Hulu, because my husband is a huge um, television guy. But I mean, by the time, and I don't think I'm alone, I think that there's probably a lot of people out there who have five or six different streaming services now on your computer or on your your, uh, DVD player, because you, you cannot not have those in order to find everything. You know, if my, if we want to, you know, watch uh, WandaVision. You got to have Disney Plus. If you want to watch, you know, Game of Thrones, you got to have HBO. I mean, it's just, it's crazy that um, you have to have so many streaming services. And that's where Netflix had, had the great thing they getting. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Something's going to change again, where there's going to have something out there that's going to come out and, and, and uh, bring everything together. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see what service comes out because people are going to start not being able to afford to buy all of these services because they are expensive. Even, even at $5, I think one of mine, I think I have, Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm a horrible Brit box person. <laughs> I love my Downton Abbey and my hey, um, Shetland and no my, you here. know, my Brit box movie. I watch I watch three hours of pro wrestling a week. So, you know, when it comes to guilty pleasures, <laughs> so I'm on, I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but, and that's like six ninety nine a month. And I think Paramount is six ninety nine a month, but after a while, that $7, and then you add all the other ones, that adds up to you know over 100 bucks by the time you get done with all your streaming services. Don't forget your internet service. Don't forget your internet service. Oh, Everyone yeah. was cutting cable, exactly. getting internet, and it was $30 versus 80 and now it's $30 plus $80. You know? I mean, it's it's more expensive now. Yeah. That's the amazing part that they've, that they've done. I mean, uh, well, I want to tell you one quick story here because this might explain – I would be remiss if I didn't mention this story. But this might explain why I, I didn't love Blockbuster so much. But in two, you, know, you mentioned when Dish Network bought it, you wondered why, right? And actually right. when it happened, it was a brilliant idea because what they were trying to do was compete with Netflix, which was the only – they were the only service at the time. They had, they built their model mm-hmm. on the DVDs at home, which, which – and what's funny is you also have to remember that that idea – that the selling point of – 
you get to go into a store and talk to somebody. That is not a selling point with 95% of the country, right? It's definitely not a selling point with me because the last thing I want to do is go in and be hassled by someone at a store, right? And unless they're really nice and I really like them. But most people who work at most of these video stores, they're not that interesting to talk to. They're just trying to get through the day, right? They, they don't want to talk to you. So, I mean, and that's, that's, the, that's the reality of it, right? So when the DVD at home service, you know, was, was really killing it, the streaming service, I remember, was, was, that was added on with the DVD service because they didn't think anyone was going to want it and they're trying to get people used to it. So when that took off, Dish Network said, well, we got to get in on this. So they bought Blockbuster because they wanted just the name Blockbuster because they were going to start their own on-demand video service with the Blockbuster name. And I thought that was a brilliant idea, so much so that I actually invested in Dish Network and I bought – through, I was really into penny stocks at the time. So anyone listening to this, never get into penny stocks. It's the easiest way to lose a ton of money. But I was into penny stocks at the time. And the Blockbuster, is called Blockbuster Liquidating, which is still traded on the New York Stock Exchange. I was actually involved in the GameStop thing. Uh, I bought into that. And that shot through the roof when Dish Network bought a Blockbuster. And then all of a sudden it came crashing down and I lost all the money I put into it. Uh, but that is how important the Blockbuster name was at one point that even in bankruptcy, they were trying to get it and uh, Dish Network was trying to get it and to market it. And, you know, as we saw two years later, it went completely out of business. And just as a side note, during that big GameStop, I don't know if you were into the into the GameStop uh, run with all the stocks that they were going up. They were all 90s nostalgia stocks, including Blockbuster, including BlackBerry and, yeah. Game, and GameStop, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, so I think the question when you're looking at this bankruptcy and you think about that. The question I had in mind, I had two questions for you, really two questions I want to answer on this podcast is number one, how is, is, and you may have answered this already. And if it's a quick answer, that's all right. But I want to know how is this store in business? What is the secret? Is it, is it a customer service? Is it the location? Um, is it the nostalgia? Is it a combination of all these things? Is it something else? Is it the community connection? Cause there has to be a reason why. Defying every single logical law. I mean, my brain explodes when I think that there's still a blockbuster open. What is the secret (laughs) sauce that you guys bring to the table to keep this thing in business over a decade after the company went out of business? I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think that, you know, we obviously, like I said earlier, no amount of hard work that we put into it or creativity or anything else that we come up with to try to, you know, combat the different um, challenges that we've been faced with would mean nothing if we didn't have people loyally coming into Blockbuster. And and let me assure you that there was a time when things were tough. I mean, and and things are still tough from time to time. And they, I mean, COVID hit and things were oh, tough. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, last yeah. April was god awful. And thank God we um, were able to get through April because honestly, I mean, just like everybody else in the world, I mean, it was it was a tough couple of months to try to figure out what we were going to do. But I think all of those things came into play. I think it comes with our customer service, our creativity, our willingness to, you know, just keep changing, keep tweaking, keep doing the things we need to do to keep ourselves, um, you know, positive, but also the community. I mean, the Bend community has really stood behind us the entire time. And even in those tough years when we were not making any money and we were not, um, you know, our, our days were pretty small and, and there was many hours of, of cleaning and we're like, I don't know if we can clean anymore because we've cleaned this, you know, every hour for the last <laughs> week. But, yeah, um, yeah. but I mean, there were definitely times when, and people asked, oh, it must be all older clientele that don't have internet that must be coming to the store. And there was a small time when that, that was true, that the majority of our customers coming in were older customers who were just incredibly loyal, wonderful people who help keep those doors open. And I will be forever grateful for them because if they weren't so loyal and coming in, we wouldn't have been able to outlast. And when the Alaska stores closed, we actually had a second location that was in Redmond. Like I said, it's about 15 minutes ahead of us. And we probably should have closed that store years earlier. But Ken and Debbie actually owned the building that it was in. And Ken and Debbie are love, you know, what they do. And and they're very loyal to their employees and their customers as well. And we really kind of limped through with that one for the last couple of years. And, and it finally got to the point where we, we had no choice to close it. It was hurting the, the Revere store and, and we needed to, you know, the Ben store. And we needed to uh, be able to keep that one going. We had to let the other store go. And so that was really tough. I mean, I know in the documentary, you see Ken sitting in the empty building talking 
and that is the the um, Redmond location that we had just closed oh, when he's sitting That's in there morbid. talking. Right in, and, in the cemetery, basically. I God, I didn't know that. Pretty much. Jeez. And so, and when he's talking, he's talking in there, and and you know, and I know it was hard for them, and I know that it really meant a lot to Ken, and, and I hope that he's not embarrassed by me saying this, but. But he didn't come into the store when we were closing it. And I know that part of the reason he doesn't come to the store when we were closing it was because of how personal it was to him that, you know, I mean, how could it not be? You worked so hard for so many years. They had, this would, 2020 would have been our 30 years of the company and our 20th years as a blockbuster. So it's like they had put their, their lives into these stores and to, and to watch one close must have just been heartbreaking for him. And so... But anyway, so there was definitely a time and went before the Alaska stores closed. I remember when we closed Redmond going, okay, well, we might have another year in Bend too, that I don't know that we're going to be able to outlast this. And then suddenly the Alaska stores closed and it was that same. I mean, that was March. I was having that conversation with my husband going, I don't know, we might be able to get through this year, but I don't think we're going to make it through next year with the, the Bend store because it's, you know, it just was trending that way. And I was like, I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to last. And then Alaska closed and it was like, holy cow. And so then Alaska closed and we became last one in the U.S. And we had that whole resurgence of people coming to visit. And I thought, okay, well, you know, that might last a year. And then people, you know, the, the nostalgia piece will get us a little bit. And then people are going to forget about it because we all know that people, I mean, myself included, we have short term stuff. I mean, you, you kind of jump on it. And then after a little while, you forget something else happens, something else, you know, is going on. And, and that's just the nature of everything. It's the nature of entertainment. It's, it's the nature of people. And then suddenly I'll start close. So it was like, boom, boom, boom. And here we are now, what, three years, two years, three years into it. Um, and we closed that store in March of 2018. So you were talking about all of these things that happened in the spring. It's like, they're all happening in the spring. Um, so now here are three, three years later and I'm like, holy cow, you know, this is great. People are so appreciative of all of our hard work and, and the nostalgia of it too, that we might have a couple more great years left before we have to start entertaining the thought of closing the store again. And so that makes me very happy. I mean, it makes me happy to know that um, my employees are going to have their jobs for a little longer, that our community is going to have the store and I can you know, buy merchandise from those two businesses as well as others in Bend and I can help their businesses survive because we're buying so many t-shirts and, and those kind of things. I mean, all of that makes me feel good. makes me feel good knowing that we're able to do events with, you know, the Humane Society and bring donations into that. I mean, all of those things play in together. And I think that that's that community spirit that we wouldn't be here still if we all didn't have that. No, I think so. Well, I'm going to give you another piece of advice. So I may have played the bad guy every now and again, but I've got some uh, some nuggets of hope for you. You know, you said that you don't know how long it's going to last. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you guys will actually, through the nostalgia alone and through the movie, I think you could go another decade or year two, right? Keep this in mind. The telegram, which I think was invented in the 1880s, the last telegram that was sent, Western Union didn't cancel their last telegram until 2013, which is like, what, 120 wow. years or something like that? So I don't know the blockbuster <laughs> is going to last 120 years. Um, I mean, it's definitely going to be past the time that you're there. But I think you may have, a, you know, the rest of your career may be at Blockbuster, I think, with the power of this movie and the nostalgia. So I want to give that to you. But also – one of the things I want to make clear is what what I thought was kind of interesting is that you know you're an interesting figure to me, right? Both personally and professionally, because I you know I want I don't understand where your loyalty comes from, and I want to get into that in a second. But I also want to make clear that you don't own this blockbuster, right? Like you take ownership well, of it, but in fact. It's owned by, as you mentioned, Ken and Debbie Tischer. They're the owners of the Blockbuster, who you almost never see. Um, how did? Uh, well, let me tell a quick history of the story, really quickly, because and t- give me, uh, give me, correct me if I'm wrong in any of this stuff. But I just want to give a very brief history of the store, and then I want to talk about them for a second. But they opened up a Pacific Video Store in 1992 in Bend, Oregon. Uh, they ended up with three stores in the area. They decided to become a Blockbuster. We talked about it earlier in 2000. And what, what's interesting from the documentary, I learned this, is that. There's this concept called rev, rev share, revenue share, where movie some companies, Blockbuster took full advantage of this. Every every movie store had to pay seventy five to one hundred dollars for a movie to be able to rent it. Blockbuster was able to get a cheaper price because of their large number of stores and locations, and they, they no, negotiated a cheaper price so they could make significantly more money. They could undercut the mom and pop businesses, and that's kind of how Blockbuster started moving in. So that's how you guys kind of became a Blockbuster. 
that, so that's kind of the story of that. And Ken Tisher was a, was a, along for this entire ride. So I've got a couple of questions there. Number one, how come how come you became the face of this and not him? That's number question number one. I don't know um, because it's funny. Early on, people they would come and interview both of us. I mean, Ken would be there with me, and you know we would be doing the CBS interviews and the Inside Edition and the you know NBC Nightly News and all and every you know NPR. Everybody who would come to the store would talk to us both, and then I would just end up being the one that they would you know show. And it was kind of funny. He's to the point now where he just laughs when they call for both for us to come down for interviews. They're like, I don't know why I'm here. You're, you want to talk to me, but you're going to put her on camera. So huh. it kind of always makes me laugh. Interesting. But and it's and it's a very loving. I mean, look, Ken and Debbie, um, they're wonderful people. And I actually worked for another corporation for ten years before I came to work for Ken and Debbie. And and I know I've I've talked about this before, but my best friend worked for them. And I, the store that I had worked for had closed, that they were tearing down the mall and making a strip mall. And so I didn't need to work, but I was going stir crazy at home. I had three little boys and I was like, just get me out of the house for a couple of hours a day. (laughs) And that's kind of how I ended up coming to work at Blockbuster was because I was like, I just need adult conversation. And Melissa talked to me and I went down there and said, Hey, give me a part-time job, a couple hours a night. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just need to get out of the house. And she had worked for me. That's how we became friends. So she had worked for me when I was a manager. And, you know, my first store that I managed, I was 19. So, I mean, I'd been a manager for a very long time. And I I would like to think that I'm a pretty good manager. And and I think that she was like, well, we're getting ready to open up a new location. We need a manager. And that's kind of how I got sucked into it. That was in 2000, right? That was in? Yep. That 2004. 2004. Okay. Yep. And once I met Ken and Debbie, I mean, at first, trust me, I was totally intimidated by Ken. He, um, he is such a great, I mean, he has so much knowledge in his head about business mm-hmm. and Debbie is a numbers cruncher. She's the, mm. the woman behind the numbers. Right, right. She's like doing the accounting and all the book stuff. And so, I mean, it's definitely a team effort. It's not just me. I get to be the face of the store, but I am not a one woman show. So there is a team of us working hard every day to keep that store going. Um, but, uh, but you know, I got, I got to meet them and got to know them. And I, and I remember, so a little note. A lot of people don't know this, but Brad and I, my husband and I, we got married, um, had our, our children, and then we actually got divorced. And we were divorced for a couple of years, and then we got remarried. But in that in-between time when we were divorced is when I started working for Ken and Debbie. And so that first Christmas that I worked for them um, as a single mom, and my husband's wonderful, and he was very supportive even then. We've always been very good friends, which is probably why we're remarried. But um, I remember that Christmas, I was struggling, and I wasn't sure how I was going to get the Christmas presents I needed to get for our three boys. And I got a Christmas bonus from Ken and Debbie. And it was, I had never had that before. I had never experienced that before. And just the acknowledgement of all my hard work and knowing how much they appreciated me won me over hands down. It brought tears to my eyes. They were such loving people and willing to take care of me. And the fact that we shared the same um passion for people. You know, Ken always says, as long as I can pay my employees and pay the bills, I'll keep the doors open. That he means that, you know, there's been many times when the bank account has gotten a little bit lower and I'm probably talking more than they, they would, you know, authorize me to do. But, but I know that there are times when they didn't take a salary from the store because the store wasn't making very much money, but they wanted to make sure that we were all taken care of. And during the pandemic, all of us still got paid even when the store was closed. So, I mean, they're very passionate about people, and I am too. I thoroughly love my customers and my employees, and I love Ken and Debbie. And I think the fact that we shared that same feeling and we had that same passion for doing a good job and for, um, I don't know, it just won me over. So you asked why I'm loyal. It's not the Blockbuster name that I was loyal to. It was the the store that I was loyal to. It was the owners. It was the, the people in the community that I'm loyal to. And, you know, <laughs> If I'm completely honest, when Blockbuster closed the corporate stores, I was the one that said, we should probably go back to Pacific Video. You know, everybody in town loved, loved Pacific Video. We should just, you know, Blockbuster has such a negative um, tone behind it. We should just go back. And I was overruled. And I'm very grateful because you're right. A lot of the success of the store right now is the nostalgia piece. People mm-hmm. love the fact that we're Blockbuster. And now they're getting to know us. Right. And so now they're they're enjoying us as well and being the, you know, underdog that survived kind of a thing. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a labor of love. 
Well, I mean, it sounds it sounds terrible. I got to tell you, I, I mean, I wasn't sure how you were going to convert me over to Blockbuster, but you're warming the old Grinch's heart over here. I mean, honestly, <laughs> uh, I thought I had a heart of ice. I thought I was impervious to any sort of Blockbuster propaganda, but it sounds like I mean, you got quite a nice deal over there. It sounds like Ken and Debbie are. are great to work for and they let you have the spotlight yeah. which is even better that would definitely appeal to me and i gotta tell you i would have when blockbuster went out of business i would have said we should go back to pacific video immediately and I, you know both of us would have been wrong and we were wrong i mean that that is the reason why you guys yeah. are so successful um but you know i i don't think that that quite encapsulates who sandy harding is you know and i think that there's a lot more to you which the, you know the documentary does a pretty decent job of getting into some of that but i think you know, part of what we like to do on the show is to kind of focus on why do people do the things that they do, you know, and and you have a great commitment to Bend, Oregon. But, I, you know, I remember reading someplace that you moved there. You, you didn't grow up in Bend, Oregon. You moved there when you were a freshman in high school, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Did Now, I moved to I moved to, to my high school. Uh, well, I moved to the town where my high school was when I was in seventh grade. So two years beforehand. But I think part of getting, you know, indoctrinated into that cult, you know, culture for lack of a better term. But, you know, when you switch schools, especially in high school, it's difficult. One of my best friends did that. Did you find it easy to kind of like just seamlessly walk into, you know, the Bend, Oregon society? I don't know where you came from before, but was it easy? And is that kind of why you like the community as much now? The, the funny thing about that, yes, I moved to Bend when I was a freshman, but we actually moved outside of Bend. So we were about 45 minutes outside of town. And I, when I was a freshman, freshman, I actually, because I came from West Albany High School, which is in Albany, Oregon, which is over in the valley near Salem, which is our state capital. And so it was a fairly decent sized high school. And we came over here and I went from, you know, a town of, you know, 50,000 people in a very populous area of Oregon to a community of 25 people. And I was a freshman in high school and I'm like, oh, I was just, I mean, you know that you're a teenager Mm -hmm. and suddenly you're ripped away from all your friends. I mean, I remember I hated my parents. I was like, this is the worst thing you could ever do to me. And my brother, who was a a year and a half younger than me, loved it. You know, he was going to a one room schoolhouse out there where we were at and he thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world. I mean, he had all this area everywhere. He was riding dirt bikes and and doing all the fun stuff he could do. But I was devastated because I was a city girl thrown into the country. And so my freshman year, I actually homeschooled. And then, and that was homeschool back before we had computers and all that. So I literally had books assigned to me and I had a teacher. Wait, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. Back up for a second. Just want to understand this. You moved to Bend as a freshman and you didn't go to school there. You were homeschooled during that year. My freshman year, but it was like halfway, half of my freshman year. So I, because we were too far away, I, I couldn't drive back and forth to school yet. So, um, so the, the end of my freshman year, I actually did homeschool. And again, I had a work at home and it wasn't on, you know, wasn't like online school is now where we have computers and stuff, which I know is tough for the kids, but back then you didn't have any supervision. So you were on your own. You did your work. And then a teacher came out, you know, once a week, gave you the tests and made sure you were doing what you're supposed to. And then she left. So I did, I was so damn bored that I did most of my freshman and sophomore classes that semester because you could go at your own pace. And I was just so bored. I just kept doing work. Right, yeah. So then my sophomore year, I, um, actually went to a boarding school in Eastern Oregon um, for like a a semester of my sophomore year, because again, I still couldn't drive and I didn't want to do any more homeschool. So my parents sent me over to this uh, boarding school. That's a public boarding school. And that's even more in rural Oregon and Burns, Oregon are right outside. Yeah. And it was like super rural. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you guys are just killing me. And so then finally I turned 16 in November. And so my last half of my sophomore year, I went to Bend high school and I was so thrilled to finally be in Bend. And can I tell you that my junior year, I went back to Crane. <laughs> so I was like, so you're right. You go from, you know, you're, you go from a really busy high school to all of that. And then I went back to a busy high school and went, you know what? This isn't actually what it's cracked out to be. So I went back to Crane and I ended up graduating there. So I really didn't um, move into the community of Bend and actually live in the Bend community <laughs> until I was. Um, in my like 20s. Wow. And when my husband and I, when my husband and I got m- together and married, I think we were 21. 
almost 22, when we actually rented our first apartment in Bend. And he's from Sisters, which is on the uh, – so the town that my parents moved me to is called Brothers, <laughs> which is 45 minutes. I'm not kidding you. Uh-huh. And my husband lived in Sisters, which is on the other side of Bend, and that's where he grew up. <laughs> and so we kind of always chuckle about that. Uh-huh. But um, And so we're both from the rural areas around Bend. And I can remember when Bend – when we moved here, I think it had – 30,000 people. And now we have over a hundred thousand people. So to watch Bend grow, you know, these last few decades too, um, has been pretty incredible. But as far as the Bend community goes, you know, I, I do did feel like I was a transplant when I got finally, you know, moved into town, but I've always had such a positive experience with people here in town. And, you know, I worked for the other company, um, and was a manager and got involved in different things, but, you know, I've always been, very personable and always been and always just wanted to do more. I mean, I remember in high school, even though I was in Crane, I was at Senator's Page and went over for a couple of weeks in to Salem and spent um, working with the um, local senator. Oh, that's really and cool. Got that's to a do great, that and got to experience that. Yeah, and I and I did that for you know for a week or two and and you know got credit for doing that. And I was like seventeen, so it was like super cool to go do yeah. that. And then there's, I mean, there's just different things that I've done over the years that I think has kind of led me to who I am and lots of mistakes that I've made, lots of different crazy things that kind of makes all of us who we are. Um, but it, I've always been um, a very loyal person and I truly love the community of Bend. I mean, they've been incredibly loyal to me and supportive and I can't help but give that back. I mean, I'd be a fool not to. I mean, I, I I think that's one of your defining characteristics. I mean, it's definitely the one that puzzled me the most. I wanted to get to the bottom of that because, you know, I, I, I mean, it's not a great, it's not an apples to oranges comparison, but I equate uh, Blockbuster almost to Walmart, right? Like they had very similar business models. Walmart would come in and just decimate small towns, mom and pop stores. And I grew up, I grew up out in the country, um, in, in Illinois, south of Chicago. And I remember the joy people would have when a Walmart would come in and people would be really excited. And they didn't understand the, the ramifications of a Walmart coming in and destroying local business because now, you know, instead of a, you know, instead of a family making a decent living as your grocery store or whatever, now everyone's going to Walmart and now those people own the grocery store instead of owning a grocery store and I'm making minimum wage stocking groceries at the Walmart. Um, it's not how you build a yeah. community. And, and I, I just, I hated Walmart for that. And I, unfortunately, I worked at a Walmart for, for a summer, um, during, in college to make money. And I got to tell you, it was the worst, the worst job I've ever had. My best, the best time I ever left the job too. I mean, I just, I, uh, wrestling was really, really big at the time. And this is an embarrassing story. I mean, I wouldn't do this now, obviously, but when I was 17 or whatever, uh, 18, I, but I remember I was just sick of it. I was fed up with, with the manager. They, they, I didn't sing their, their little song in the beginning of their, you know, every, every work day would start with a little song and I, and I didn't do it. I didn't give it the emphasis. I remember this guy brought me up on stage, the, the store manager. And I think he thought he was going to embarrass me into, into compliance, you know, humiliate me into compliance, the Walmart way. And I wasn't having it. I mean, I'm very, uh, you could pull my pants down in front of an auditorium and I probably wouldn't be that embarrassed. I don't really, it doesn't really bother me that much. And so I wasn't having it. And I was like, I don't want to work for a place like this. And I remember leaving the job. I saw the manager and, uh, you know, DX from, from pro wrestling and WWE was really popular. And I remember I just gave him the crotch chop. Anyone who's ever, who's ever seen the show knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. I gave him the crotch <laughs> chop and I said, I'm out of here. And then I walked off and I never came back. And then they sent me my last check. And that was the greatest feeling ever to leave a job like that, knowing full well. I could burn that bridge and never come back to it. Uh, so that was like one of my favorite experiences. But my point to you is, I have a point during all this. Uh, if if Walmart, you know, Amazon is destroying Walmart. Uh, it's destroying small businesses as well. But they at least give small businesses a chance online. If Amazon fully destroyed Walmart and there was one Walmart left, you know, in Tullahoe, Missouri, do you think there would be a documentary on that with a store manager that was as loyal to Walmart as you are to Blockbuster? I don't know. Because, again, they would still probably be a part of the corporate. I don't think they have franchise Walmarts out there. So I don't think there's anybody that has that personal um, attachment to it. I think that, that I mean, Ken and Debbie, yes, we operated under the Blockbuster name, but the, but all of us shared that personal connection to the store. I mean, it was the choices that we made that made a difference to whether or not we stayed open. Whereas in the corporate world, it's the corporate decisions that make the decision, obviously, if the corporate stores are gone. Um, and so I think that you have that personal thing that you don't get with the corporate stores. I mean, we make decisions daily that could make or break our business. 
And so I think that that's that personal part of it that you don't get. So I don't, I mean, there might be a documentary about it, but it would probably be focused on, you know, the fact that Walmart went bust because of the choices that they made and because Amazon came in and did it better. I think you're right there. I think I gave you an easy out because I think you're right. It is a corporate store versus a franchisee. But I think of them as being similar. Um, but, you know, I mean, you are a different breed of cat. And I think that, you know, you like, for example, the kind of the fun thing that you do is, you know, to keep the store alive, you do a lot of, you know, you mentioned before you have a lot of locally sourced um, memorabilia. You even make beanies, which I'm preventing you from right now. In order to get – people don't know this. I'm going to give you a little look behind the curtain here. In order to get this perfect audio that you're hearing, Sandy, uh, the beautiful fidelity you're hearing Sandy through right now, that is because she has to hold one hand of her, on her phone to her head instead of using two hands to make Blockbuster beanies that she sells in the store. Handmade. You know, Go to benblockbuster.com. To get them. Uh, I hope they got that website right. Uh, but so – when did did you um, get into beanies? Why, why do you uh, why are you making beanies for the store? What's what's going on here? <laughs> so that's a, a funny little thing too, because I um, as a had to relax. Because a lot of people don't realize I have horrendous anxiety. So the, huh. even the fact that we did the movie, most people that know me are like, I can't believe you did that. Because the um, really? I had to really learn how to focus and not pay attention to the people around me. And you had asked me early on. Walmart would have had you for breakfast, by the way. They would have. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They would have. I would have been totally lost. Um, so, you know, and, and the funny thing is 30 years ago, I'd have been fine doing those things, but not now. The older huh. I get, the more I'm like, uh-uh, no way. I'm out of here. Uh, but anyway, so uh, at night after work to kind of unwind and, and relax, I crochet and knit. I mean, that's just what I do. And, and people know that. And, and anyway, I suddenly realized I could make a hat. And so about six months before we started selling them, I started kind of tinkering around with making beanies. And suddenly I was making them and they were looking pretty good. I was like, okay, this isn't too bad, but I'm still thinking I'm an amateur. Nobody in the world is ever going to want them. And my husband and my sons were like, you should sell them. You should go on Etsy and sell your hats. I'm like, no one is going to want to buy a hat that I'm making by hand. So then my store manager that works with me, um, Dan, who's worked for me for 10 years, he was like, um, yeah, <laughs> he was like, you know what? You should make me those and let me sell them in the store. And I was like, well, how am I going to get the Blockbuster name on it? So I had a whole bunch of old Blockbuster polos in my garage that are all, you know, just ripped to sh shreds. They're just older than ever. So I literally cut the patches out of the Blockbuster polo shirts, cleaned them up, ironed them. Got them really nicely, and then I fabric glued them onto the front of the beanie, thinking, okay, well, let's see what happens. And I probably made, like, ten of them. They were gone within a week. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And Dan's like, you've got to make more beanies. And I'm like, okay, I was not looking for a side hustle out of the store. I'm like, no. I've got more than enough stuff to do. I was like – I was just doing this to relax. So then it just became kind of a funny, ha-ha. Let's see if yeah. people are really silly enough to buy something that I made if they only knew how boring I was. And I come home, you know, watch Downton Abbey reruns and, you know, knit beanies all night. But um, anyway, so that's kind of how that started. Yeah. And then it just snowballed. Then suddenly everybody wanted one. And, and I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the nostalgia. I don't think that my beanies are... Are are uh, you know they're they're personal they're made by me. Um, in fact, I have so many on order right now that I'm I just about cried when I realized. So when the Netflix movie hit, I had some stock there, but I make them all by hand. And um, I told my son Ryan, who manages our website, I was like, make sure that if it gets you know up to a certain amount, you're going to have to put them on back order because I cannot physically make that many beanies. So it got up to about 200, and I said, okay, that's good. I'm not going to be able to make much more than that unless they don't want to get them until the fall. Within 24 hours, we were up to 625 beanies <laughs> before he was able, and that was before he was able to turn it and get it on the back order. So I will be making beanies. I will probably have to have carpal tunnel surgery when wow. it's done, but I'm going to be making beanies probably for the rest of my life. But, but you know what though? Um, it's, it is definitely something that I do anyway. So um, it's definitely relaxing for me. Um, it's a little bit stressful right now. So anybody who's got a beanie on order, be patient. I'm making them and with all the love in the world in them, but it's going to take me a little while to get them all done. Um, but it's fun. And, and, you know, even the patches that I used to take off the polo shirts, I found a local company here in Bend that was able to recreate the exact patch that was on our polo shirts back <laughs> in the 90s. That's and cool. so that's what I still wow. 
do the same thing. I still, you know, fabric glue them onto the front of it because you can't iron acrylic beanies without messing them up. But, oh, um, wow. but anyway, it, it just became something that was fun that, that totally got out of control. And um, I'm still enjoying it. I'm still laughing about it. I'm still having fun. I've got lots of Blockbuster moms that are reaching out and like, hey, what can I do to help you make some beanies? And I've got several employees and a couple of even the male employees that it just cracks me up because they're like, well, I guess I'm going to learn how to make beanies. And anyway, it's kind of fun. And we all work together. And that I think that is the most important part is that everyone that works for me, we're all invested in each other. It's not just the store. It's each other. And we want to be successful and do well for, for all of us. And I think that that's kind of what makes us special. Well, I don't want, you know, look, you guys got a working system here. I don't want to get involved, but I got, I got to give you a little piece of advice here. So if you've, and I'm sure Ken would, would, Ken and, Ken and Debbie would appreciate this as well. But if you, if you've got that many, how much you, how much you selling the beanies for? If I don't mind me asking. No, they're $26. Okay. So that's too low if you can get an order of 600 orders, right? What you got to do. <laughs> it's called supply and demand. Uh, you gotta, you gotta raise the price a little bit. Your profit will go up and the number of beanies you have to make will go down and that will stop you from getting carpal tunnel syndrome because the profit you're gonna make from these <laughs> is going right into your, right into your wrists. And I think you're, you're missing an opportunity I know. here. As a, in a closing, uh, you told me a little story before, before we got on, on the interview here that, that I want to talk about because I think that this in some ways encapsulates you know, almost a bittersweet nature of what you guys are doing. And you talked about your cat, who I heard in a previous interview meowing in the background. And so you were telling me the story. This is a cat that you adopted when you first started in Blockbuster, right? Tell me this story because it's, it's very sweet. Yeah. So the first year um, that I worked for Blockbuster and at the location I'm at right now, we had a Humane Society event and I adopted a kitty. And she became our blockbuster kitty. And she's actually in the movie too. You see her in there at one point. And unfortunately last year she passed um, and it was just very bittersweet, but it, we always kind of laughed because even my husband and, and not everyone knows this, but when we got, first got married, he worked for a couple of local mom and pops and we moved to Medford, Oregon for about a year. And while we were in Medford, he worked for blockbuster and so that was when Lion King came out and then we moved back home and then eventually I went to work for Blockbuster. So it's kind of a funny little thing how my husband and I both did. All three of our sons worked at Blockbuster and we even had our kitty for Blockbuster. So wow. we were like the <laughs> ultimate Blockbuster family. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that when before our store became Blockbuster, was still Pacific Video and Brad and I were dating, one of our first dates was going to the same location, renting movies going and getting dinner and having a movie night when we were first dating. Blockbuster and chill. There you go. So it's so funny that this location was where we came to when we were first dating. This is where we're still at. And it has just always been a part of our family and a part of our lives. And and so it was just kind of destined to be. Um, but anyway, it's a very sweet thing. And and I dearly miss my kitty. I know my, my family does too. She was very unique. And all the Blockbuster kids all know her too because they couldn't call me on the phone without having... Callie crying in the background. So she always had to have lots of attention. Well, it sounds adorable. I don't mean to end it on a bittersweet moment or to make it even worse by saying, no. I hope it's not an omen for what is to come. Uh, but I no. don't think that it is. Uh, and I love the humane society aspect of that. I mean, that it really story tells you exactly why your store is so special. Um, but I've got a couple of other questions. We're going to do a little bonus episode about the personal touch you put on the store because there's a couple of fun things, including the computers and, and how you even stock the movies and the candy and all that stuff. It's totally unique. Uh, and I love that. But, you know, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about the store, if they want to buy those beanies, which hopefully I apologize to everyone listening. They may the price may go up by 200, 300 percent by the end of the week. <laughs> uh, but how can people get those? How can people reach you? Social media and all that. So we definitely have uh, bendblockbuster.com. Um, that's where you can go and see the merchandise that we sell. And remember that, again, it's all locally sourced. Um, and so we have lots of hard working people in Bend getting us all that merchandise. So we're currently about two and a half weeks behind on getting orders because we process them all at the store. I've got, you know, 12 employees and, and we're all working hard in the store and doing the online orders. Um, and then as far as we, you know, we do have Instagram, um, at, I think it's the, Ryan just changed it to last blockbuster, um, on Instagram. And then, um, yeah, they can, you know, call the store, they can reach me, they can email me at Sandy H at Bentel.net. And, you know, um, I'm always available. It's, it's sometimes easier to email me than it is to email the store. Because like I said, early on, we have hundreds of 
emails coming through with well-wishers, which I appreciate every single story and every single, you know, good luck and wish you, wish you the best that we get. Um, but it does make it difficult for me to respond to all of them. And there's so many. And you guys also have a Twitter account, I believe, which I'll put links to all this stuff. And there's this great stop motion video of Godzilla versus Kong that I thought was actually, uh, the special <laughs> effects are pretty cool on that. I like that. Uh, so I'm going to put that all on the website, make it easy to get, but you know, you're a busy woman, Sandy Harding, uh, managing the last blockbuster cementing your place in history. And I really appreciate you taking all this time out for me. So thank you very much. You're welcome. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this show, you've got to subscribe. We are on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you want an easy way to access the episodes, you can go to our website, fascinatingnouns.com, where you can find links to those aforementioned podcasting platforms. But we also have them hosted right there on the site. Go to the top of the page and click episodes, and you will find our entire library right there for you to listen to, organized by episode or by guest, which is a great way to organize everything, if you don't mind me saying so. And of course, you can follow the show on social media as well. Find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And of course, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.